Jcast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Marthame Sanders. On this episode, part one of our conversation with Marie Marquardt. Marie is an author, scholar, an advocate, and she spoke with us from her home here in Atlanta. Marie Marquardt, welcome to AIJ Cast. Thanks so much for having me, Martha. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. You are, like many artists I know, a multi-hyphenate. And so I do want to touch on a lot of those things. I would love to start by talking about the work you've done in young adult fiction. You have three books in young adult fiction, and I'd love to know a little bit more about those books and also what drew you to that particular medium. Yeah, so um, it's interesting that we're starting at young adult fiction because it took me a long time to journey to the place of writing young adult fiction. Um, in a sense, it's it's much later in the story for me. I was drawn to, to writing young adult fiction. I've written three books. They're all um, uh, contemporary YA, and all three of them um, kind of work at the um, intersection of my academic work and my artistic work, which is... Um, they explore the stories of um, immigrants from the Northern Triangle of Central America or from uh, Mexico living in community alongside uh, folks who were born here in the United States and um, just explore some of the relationships that come out of this kind of moment that we are living in. And I um, wanted and really I think probably it would be better to say needed <laughs> to tell these stories as a result of kind of a journey that I had been on for uh, uh, really about 15 years before I started writing my first novel, Dream Things True, uh, working, learning, worshiping, and advocating alongside um, undocumented immigrants and asylum seekers in Georgia. Mm. Well, then let's take a step back and and go there and then get back to the, to the fiction books. So... Tell, take us on that journey with you, 15 years of research and work and passion. Yeah. So um, I, I really started spending time working and worshiping among uh, immigrants in Georgia because of my um, academic research. I'm a sociologist of religion by training, and I came to Georgia to do research because um, Georgia was a place uh, at that time, again, this was now a couple of decades ago, at that time Georgia was what's... Um, sometimes described by demographers as a hypergrowth region mm. for uh, immigration to the United States. Um, I embedded myself as a researcher in communities that were changing just enormously rapidly, uh, demographically speaking. And most of that change was as a result of migration, primarily from Mexico and primarily undocumented immigration. So um, I had all of these big theoretical questions I wanted to ask as a super fancy sociologist of religion <laughs> graduate student. And I was curious about globalization and transnationalism and all of these um, kind of hot theoretical topics of the time. And to do that, um, I'm an ethnographer. So to do that, I um, had to kind of settle myself into specific local communities, right. in this case, churches, and spend a lot of time there. And what came out of that was um, surprising to me, two things. One is that I built profound lifelong friendships mm. um, with the people that initially um, I had arrived to you know, research or sure. study. And the second was that as a result of having built those profound relationships, I realized that the questions that I was asking weren't the right questions. Mm. <laughs> that the, the, the burning issues for the people that I had come to love and care about 
were um, issues around uh, what it means to live undocumented in the United States, why migrate without authorization, all those sorts of questions. So I shifted my own research, and I took the information that I had gathered and really started focusing more on advocacy work. Hmm. And how I came to fiction, it was an interesting journey. Hmm. I I wrote a book, I co-authored a book, uh, a nonfiction book um, that came out in 2011 that looked um, at uh, what it is to live undocumented in the United States and the challenges and struggles that undocumented immigrants face. And after we wrote that book, we started getting invited to speak to groups about immigration. Um, And I went in armed with so much data and information and, I mean, PowerPoint slides to the ceiling, right? And I thought, well, if I can just show people the facts, right, if I can change their minds, if I can help them see that much of the policy is being developed around these myths and here are the truths, the realities, then, you know, the situation will change. Well, you know, so I spent a whole lot of time throwing data at people. And in the process, I realized that... um, where the real work is done in promoting justice is not necessarily in changing people's minds. It's in engaging people by that through the heart and in Mm. face-to-face relationships. Mm. And that was my own journey. And I um, realized actually, I'll never forget the moment I realized it. I was um, doing an event. It was at a church. It was a huge group of 200 people in the audience. I did my little spiel, my PowerPoint slides. I gave them all the data. And, you know, I thought, well, gosh, here we go. We're changing minds. But I had invited a young friend of mine who was um, herself an undocumented immigrant. This was prior to DACA. Uh, She was a senior in high school. I asked her, she was an actress, so she was this very poised speaker. And I asked her, hey, will you come and just tell a little bit about your story? And she did. Um, And she had a kind of script that she had planned. And when she got up there, she really just kind of set the script aside and said, this sucks. Mm. I'm facing graduation. All my peers are who I've worked just as hard as are going in one direction. I'm going in another. And as I heard her tell her story, I realized that really story has such a powerful way to connect us to one another. Sure. And to get us to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, So I thought, well, I have been so deeply, I've had the honor of being so deeply engaged in people's stories. Let me give it a shot. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I think that power of story is so critical. It it also strikes me as being kind of a double-edged sword because there's also the danger of the anecdotal overriding the data, Mm -hmm. right? So it's what gives rise to conspiracy theories on, on the, on the downside of it. Right. So, well, I have this friend who, uh, you know, wore a mask and it gave him COVID or whatever the story, as opposed to the data, which shows something very else, um, very different, which I think ultimately it does speak to the power of story. Maybe it's to the negative and the positive power of story, but I don't know if you have any thoughts about that kind of dichotomy. Yeah, precisely. I mean, I think your point is you've just made the point exactly that, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but I, but what I, really come to feel committed to is that um, when we engage through story mm. um, and when we engage intimately, we're more likely to, to ask the right questions and hmm. look for answers in the right way. We start to care deeply about mm. making sure that we understand this situation yeah. um, and that we understand this particular problem. And uh, that's a different way of engaging. Now, if we're looking the wrong place for information and data, then you know, unfortunately, now it's very hard to find the good data, right? Right. right. 
you know, based on my experience, um, I really do believe that um, storytelling um, is a powerful way to connect us to one another. Yeah, yeah. Well, and an intimate part of this for you is the story of faith, um, both as an abstract story and as a personal story. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, it's interesting because on the one hand, I I was trained to study f- uh, people's practice of religion, sure. right? <laughs> How their faith was enacted. Yeah. But at the same time, um, I am a person of deep faith and, um, that has really driven my, um, my trajectory. Mm. Uh, it's, um, another kind of piece that comes in here, um, is definitely the story of the work that I've done initially to found and then to help develop a nonprofit called El Refugio. Mm. And El Refugio, uh, one of the things that happened as I built friendships and relationships with undocumented folks was that I found myself traveling to this um, small remote community in southwest Georgia where at the time the largest immigration detention center in the United States had been Mm. built and um, several kind of factors converged that um, I stepped forward to help out a, a group of folks who said listen, this place is a place that's so remote. It's um, People are coming here from all over the Southeast to visit their loved ones, and there's not even a grocery store. There's not even a hotel. There's they, there's nowhere for people to even rest, um, right. to pause, except the parking lot. Right. So a group of us got together, and we rented a house a mile down the road from this enormous hulking detention center and just started taking turns hosting families on the weekends. Mm. And uh, giving them a free place to stay and giving them as much support as we could offer and food and love and um, companionship. And that has, it's been a profound journey for me. Mm. Uh, It really changed my life and the course of my life. And um, I think one of the things that in terms of my my spiritual journey uh, and my journey of faith is that... um, it just taught me how radical hospitality can be mm. and that, you know, we think about hospitality in our culture as this sort of Chick-fil-A, like, how, how may I serve you? Or how may I help you? Or, you know, this kind of, or, or the hospitality industry. Yeah. And I have experienced both giving and receiving at El Refugio a hospitality that is radically transformative of relationships and I believe of society. And my stories all really work in that space as yeah. well. Let's talk, let's talk about that. I think you really hit the nub of something about kind of American cultural understanding of hospitality, obviously the story of faith. What, where are the parallels? What are the distinctions? What kind of hospitality have you experienced that has caused you to rethink and examine those? Yeah. So, you know, I, when I first started um, doing the work at El Refugio, um, I would feel frustrated sometimes when people would kind of reference the themes and the and the Judeo-Christian tradition of welcoming the stranger. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? These aren't strangers. These are our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the, you know, we're talking about people who are, are part of our communities, that go to school with our kids, that worship in the same churches as us. I'm Catholic, so this is mm-hmm. particularly poignant okay. for me. Thank you. Yeah. And I, it was frustrating and kind of upsetting for me to, to hear this kind of, this refrain of welcoming the stranger. But then I ended up several weekends a year going to a place um, that was a tiny little house 
waiting for someone to show up at the door who I had never met before, never spoken to before, um, had no connection with. Maybe they're just, they just arrive at the door and knock on the door. They hadn't even communicated with us in another way. Mm-hmm. Throwing up in the doors and saying, let's be in community together for this weekend. And I can tell you that this model of, the, of welcoming the stranger, it made me go back and sort of mm. re-examine the tradition in, in my own tradition, the call to welcome the stranger that's so prevalent throughout that text. Sure. And the, the thing about the stranger is um, it's, it's, this, it's the stranger whom we love, right? Mm-hmm. That we are called to welcome in love. And when we do, we both give and receive hospitality and love. And that's happened to me in a million different ways at Elder Fukio. It's just been an extraordinary, extraordinary gift. You know, um, when we spend a weekend in the house together and suddenly I find that the guest for whom I am supposed to be caring is offering me care and love and concern, is stepping forward to prepare the meal, is praying for my children, is hugging me when I'm crying because the asylum seeker that I've been visiting in detention is on a plane to be deported to San Salvador. Mm. And just really incredible relationships when we overcome our fear and um, concerns about about this radical hospitality and really engage with strangers, actual Mm. strangers. (laughs) Marie Marquardt on AIJCast. We'll be back to more of our conversation in just a moment, but first, a quick word. As always, I want to point you to our website, AIJCast.com, because it's there in particular that you will find links to our artists and to their news, events, and products. Due to the continuing effects of COVID-19 here in the United States, we don't have as much to plug as we usually do here at AIJCast. However, I do want to say a few words I never expected to say before. I want to give a shout out to the United States Postal Service. For a long while, all of our episodes here at AIJCast were recorded in person. And when we started expanding and recording guests remotely, we realized very quickly that they needed quality equipment on their end. And now, because it is wise not to gather in person, we are recording all of our conversations remotely. And so that need to ship equipment to other places, even across the city of Atlanta, has increased. And I've got to say, for most of what we do, we rely on the Postal Service. And not only have they upped their online game, their services are affordable, their tracking is reliable, and their estimated delivery times are frankly outperforming their competitors right now. So all in all, I'm grateful for the post office. And this does give me an opportunity to make one plug. We do ask for your support because our shipping costs have increased, so have our production costs. And you can help us make ends meet by going to our website, AIJCast.com, and clicking on the link that says support. And now back to more of our conversation with Marie Marquardt. We pick up that conversation speaking more about hospitality. A big part of my journey of faith was time spent in the West Bank living in a Palestinian village and experiencing what I would call extravagant hospitality. Mm-hmm. It's that story of Abraham welcoming the three strangers and killing the fatted calf to feed them. That over-the-top, just abundant uh, hospitality, which there are versions of in the American culture, but for the most part, I think you're right. It feels like we have commodified a lot of that. We have found ways to move that into a more capitalist framework or to make profit off of it as opposed to that, yeah, that, that building of neighborhood and building of neighborness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does feel like a particularly, maybe it's not exclusively this, but it does feel to me very much like a particularly American disease of that loss of hospitality at its core. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I too um, think about having been the recipient of extravagant hospitality. For me, I was, it was um, doing research for my dissertation in Mexico. I, were, I did research with Mexican migrants and then went yeah. back to their sending communities, you know, and showing up and just having people roll out the carpet, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they prepare a feast and, um, and, and, and what it felt like to receive that. And, and just the real, frankly, the shame I felt at times yeah. that I, I was receiving this extravagant hospitality, knowing the experience of, of being denied even the most basic hospitality yeah. of their family members in my community back in the United States. And so, and we at Arafukia talk about that a lot. We want to laugh. We want to shower people with hospitality and love. We want to, you know, we, we've just had the wonderful opportunity to move into a new home and it is beautiful to be able to provide a lovely space um, mm-hmm. with comfortable beds and wonderful mm-hmm. sheets and to really shower um, uh, our new friends mm-hmm. with hospitality and then open ourselves to receiving uh, that grace of hospitality as well. Yeah. And that's that's been a real journey. I think the key component of all of this is also that human interaction. You talked about being the host down there at the home. So it's nice to be able to welcome a person to a nice place. Obviously with COVID, it's a very different environment, but there is something about that personal touch of welcoming and giving a name and recognizing a personal touch. Is that part of the mission of El Refugio also? So one of the things that we've been committed to at El Refugio from the very beginning is, um, sort of resisting the more, um, exchange model of hospitality, um, and, really leaning into an understanding of our hospitality house as being a place where um, we really live alongside one another. Um, The hosts for the weekend, each weekend, uh, generally a family will come and serve as hosts of the house as volunteers. And the hosts and the guests live in in relationship in that house over the course of the weekend. So for example, you know, we're sleeping in the bedrooms next door to one another. We're we're in the kitchen together working to prepare a meal. And again, and one of the most beautiful things is that many of our hosts um, have children and many of our guests have children. And uh, it's really wonderful to see the the hosts and the guests, uh, children outside playing on the playground together and running around the house together and, you know, sitting and doing a puzzle together. Um, it's a wonderful experience, a wonderful yeah. experience. And I think it's one of the things that makes this form of hospitality radical. It may not sound radical, but again, to, uh, to immediately build deep relationships of trust with strangers is not what we as Americans are accustomed to doing. Eating and playing are oddly two of the more intimate acts, I think, that we can do as human beings. Absolutely. And we, yeah. we have this wonderful big long table where we, we share meals and, um, just gathering around that table and breaking bread together, right? It's yeah. it's a very for me, you know, it's a very kind of sacramental thing. It gathers yeah. us into community. We talk about it sometimes as a ministry of presence. You know, if we don't get the sheets done or we don't get this whatever we needed to do on that day, don't get the forms filled out. What's most important is that we are physically and fully present to the people who walk through that door. There's something about prioritizing relationships over schedules. Mm -hmm. Um, This notion, and in a culture that allows that to happen, where to be late to the next thing is forgiven because of, I'm so sorry I'm late, my cousin showed up from out of town all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Uh, Immediately, 
everyone in that context understands, oh, that, that took priority. We get that. We get that. Absolutely. And there's something about that grace and also that recognition of having your priorities right in a Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting. It's one of the things we do at El Refugio is we bring volunteers to visit with detained folks who don't have any family or anyone to visit with them. And, um, for our volunteers, really one of the, I think it's really transformative for them to, first of all, inside the detention center, to be in a situation of complete powerlessness at the, you know, at the hands of the institution that structures this space, the guards and the obscene, inane rules. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just to kind of have to relinquish that sense of control and power. And that really is, I think it's transformative. It's really one of the most um, amazing things that happens. Of course, we are fighting hard uh, for there to be um, more agency sure. <laughs> among uh, visitors and the detained. But uh, at the same time, it's been really um, interesting to be on the journey with so many people who aren't who are privileged and aren't accustomed to having to relinquish their power. Yeah, that you know, that's so profound for me. I think the thing that I have recognized about those situations of power and powerlessness is the for those who hold power. The priority of agency for the powerless is very low to non-existent. So rules being applied arbitrarily is par for the course. Mm-hmm. It's part of what keeps that status quo of power and powerlessness, I think. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, in the waiting room of that detention facility, yeah. the rules change all the time. Yeah. And we never know what they are. And we have to train our visitors to walk in and say, if they told you yesterday you could have a pencil and today you can't have a pencil we're powerless in the yeah. fate. Now we're also working to change the structure, but inside that space at that moment, when our priority is to get face to face with and spend some time with a detained immigrant who's waiting to be in relationship with us. You got to let the pencil go. Yeah. Let the pencil yeah. go. And, and the other thing I think that's really important is to remember. And, and we talk about this a lot with our uh, volunteers that we are, um, at the mercy of a at the same system that the guards are at the mercy of, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, they are working for low wages. They're working in terrible conditions. Um, and when we ask you to treat every person you encounter with full recognition of their dignity, that's going to have to include the guards because their dignity is being stripped from them as well. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the brilliance of Desmond Tutu and the truth and reconciliation commission in South Africa, which, the part of that was the recognition of a system that was unjust. And so there are the clear victims of those who are being imprisoned and tortured and killed. And then there are those who are the enforcers of it, but not those at the, the upper echelons. And those enforcers are victims of that system as well. And so to really deal with the system, you have to put the system on trial and not those who carry out the system. Precisely. As it were. Yeah. And that's just, it's become so abundantly evident as we've spent so much time in that community and also the town itself and just how the economic relationship that this private corporation that runs the detention center has built with this town has put them, the town in a really terrible bind. Really, And if we want justice, then we're going to have to seek justice writ large, right? Mm. We're going to have to look at a deeply impoverished Southern community um, and and look for a justice that will kind of all, ri- all tides will rise, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and that's a challenge. It's, it's, it's been 
it's been overwhelming to kind of peel back all the layers of injustice that are happening in that community. Well, it sounds a lot like the old company towns of like the, the coal mining rush and things like that, right? Where you would get paid in company script that was only good at the company store. And so the company just made money hand over fist. It sounds like what you're describing is really a situation where a, a town is almost held captive by private enterprise. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, wow. the material relationships, the sort of monetary relationships that the town enters into with these corporations, once they get in, it's impossible to find a way out. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, virtually yeah. impossible. The town's economy relies so heavily Uh, Their economic base relies so heavily on this hulking facility that no one really wants in their community. But it's a paycheck. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's been a journey there. You know, kind of coming back to my evolution as a person who is making art (laughs) as a way to um, to work through these um, these experiences. You know, at first, I think I was pretty instrumental about why would I want to write fiction Mm -hmm. rather than continue writing academic nonfiction? Mm -hmm. This kind of idea of the power of story. But when I look back, I I realized that another thing that was going on is that um, I was experiencing what I I think psychologists and psychiatrists might call secondary trauma. Mm. You know, I was, as I walked alongside people in crisis in a system that was there was very little that we could do that I could do still there's less now <laughs> to change that system, but refuse to turn away from that suffering and that crisis. I, I think that one of the reasons I turned to writing fiction was um, as a way to process that, mm. what it was to be in that trauma with, with, um, with people that I had grown to love. Yeah. And it's been a powerful thing to, to, um, be able to tell stories that are not my stories. Right. All of my f- novels have characters that are told from multiple points of view. So, but one of the ways that I tell the stories is to really try and be present to the trauma that I've experienced alongside people that I love. Mm. Yeah. Um, and the joy yeah. and the joy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not yeah. monolithic, is it? Right. Right. What is it about the act of writing, the mechanics of writing, particularly fiction, that allows for that processing? You know, I'm not sure that I can articulate it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I suppose most people are familiar with journaling, right? And sure. what just putting a pen or pencil to paper um, can do to help us kind of process our experience. And for me, I think because I had written s- stories in the format of academic nonfiction, for me to be able to shift and tell stories that began from the place, again, began kind of from the heart space, right? Um, and that um, uh, allowed me to ground my, how how I would tell a story in the experience, particularly the emotive or emotional experience of that, um, was just really um, freeing and mm. beautiful and I'm not sure fun is the right word, but... Um, joyful, maybe? Joyful, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then the joy of being able to um, share these stories and connect with folks through the stories um, was something that I couldn't have even anticipated. Mm. Mm. And particularly young people. I mean, just I've gotten to spend so much time with so many incredible 
thoughtful, beautiful human beings uh, because I, I write for and about young adults. Marie Marquardt on AIJCast. You can find out more about her and where to buy her books online at mariemarquardt.com. Marquardt is spelled M-A-R-Q-U-A-R-D-T. On our next episode, part two of our conversation with Marie Marquardt. AIJCast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. We can only continue to do this work because of your support. So please do take just a moment, no longer than that, and go to our website, AIJCast.com, where you can click on the link that says support. And we do love to interact with you on social media. We love it when you give us shout outs. We are there on a multitude of platforms where our handle is AIJCast. Our theme music comes from our house band, Marge Fame. And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the somewhat magical Al Mudif. Al loves to complain about his quarantine commute from the kitchen all the way to the living room. It took me a long time to journey to the place. And I'm your host, Martha Sanders, encouraging you to go, rather stay put, create some beauty of your own. And remember that there is no true beauty until the world is beautiful for all. So I leave you with peace and justice.